Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm honored that you're here. I'm talking to you from a remote location. Not much around me right now. Uh, good to be in some solitude. But I do have this microphone, and so I thought I would present an interview for you all. This was recorded a few years back. It is an interview with songwriter Steve Dorff. He is quite a songwriter. Since this interview, he has been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Congratulations again, Steve. Much deserved. Some of you might be familiar with the second interview that I did with Steve Dorff. This actually went before that one. This was the first one. It was done in Gainesville, Georgia. The John Gerard Songwriters Festival was going on. I met him at a hotel. We went into this conference room and we recorded this, which was originally broadcast on the radio. It's an honor to present the first interview with Steve Dorff. It has not been made available to the podcast until now. Quite a story that this man has. His songs have been recorded by everyone from Garth Brooks to George Strait. Goodness, there you could just go on and on. He wrote the song through the years that Kenny Rogers recorded. I hope you all enjoy, and if you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour, just go to thepaulleslie.com. You're going to find a button where you can contribute to the show. Any amount, small, large, it all goes to keep the show going. As always, let me know what you think. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Leslie presents, and now your host, Paul Leslie. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to our interview with Steve Dorff. So first of all, thanks so much for meeting me and doing this. Yeah, it's nice to be back in Georgia. Brings back old memories of uh, when I went to school here many years ago. That's right. Not too many years ago. but Your story starts in Atlanta, Georgia. Pretty much. What part of Atlanta? Northeast. Lived in these apartments off of Shalliford Road. I don't even know. Probably doesn't exist. Then. Was the house a very musical one? Growing up? Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up in New York. Oh, okay. New York City. I went to went to school in, at the University of Georgia and then, and then moved to Atlanta upon graduating. So growing up in New York, no, it wasn't. Actually, I was my sister, who was eight years older than I was, would take piano lessons. From what they tell me, I would crawl up on the piano bench and play the stuff she'd been practicing all week better than she could. So after a series of her trying to break all my arms and legs and fingers, but no, it really wasn't. My I was pretty much the only one that kind of had this gift or maniacal uh, passion for for music at a very very young age. When did the passion for the music start to grow to the point where you started to see yourself as, as being a musician? I think it was always there. In looking back, it was always there. I, I was one of these kids that I can go back to maybe six or seven when we were having a snowball fight with my friends. Everybody, the idea was to try not to get hit by the ice and the snow, and I would be standing there in the middle getting pelted from all sides, musicalizing the whole thing. So I think from that in retrospect, looking back, I always heard orchestras in my head, and no matter what I was doing, 
I was kind of underscoring what was going on around me. Do you do that still today when you... I absolutely do. And and it's it's not anything I try to do, or certainly when I was a kid. You know, I remember vividly at a Little League game, a good friend of mine hit a home run, and I asked my mother who was sitting there, I said, how did you hear that? Because I was hearing this whole symphonic thing. And she just looked at me like, what? You know, because I just assumed everybody did that. How would I not? So, yeah, that, that was kind of my childhood and, and growing up. And uh, I think the first time I consciously said, that's what I want to do, is uh, when I saw Leonard Bernstein conducting the New York film on television. I was about seven or eight. What was it about seeing that and listening to that that made you feel that way? Again, I couldn't know it at the time, but in looking back, I think it was, I was finally seeing visually someone doing what I was hearing. Wow. And I went. Ah, okay, that's how you do it. And that was a very powerful moment. I I can see it vividly now, like it was yesterday. When was the first time you realized that you had written a song? (laughs) I think I've been writing songs. I mean, they weren't songs like we know them, three and a half, four minute little movies, certainly no lyrics. But I, I remember writing a thing on the piano when I was little about a bear. And I would do the, the low end of the piano, these notes, when it was, when it was dark and angry and when the bear got angry and when he was happy, I would do the higher keys. And so instinctively, I think it's the same process I follow now when I'm looking at film and scoring a film. If there's a dark moment, I'm thinking dark and minor and, or off rhythm. When it's a happier, loving moment, I'm thinking more melodic. And so I think instinctively, that's, that's the first thing I remember ever writing. It's this silly little thing about a bear. The first song I can consciously remember writing was in, I was about 12. I was putting a band together in New York with a couple of friends. My good friend and I, uh, at the time, we wrote three songs together. I said, come on, let's, let's write our own songs. Do what the Beatles are doing. I don't want to write them down. I want to play other people's music. I got thrown out of the band because I didn't want to play Wipeout or uh, Tequila or the covers that Right. Bands were getting getting paid to do. My friends wanted to make money at it. You know, they wanted to make twenty bucks a night, so or fifty bucks on a big gig on the weekend. And and I said, I want to play that stuff. You know, somebody already did that. Let's do. Let's, let's write our own. Hmm. What about the first song that you wrote that was recorded by somebody? Very first song ever recorded was an instrumental. It was called Infinity Blue. And Al Kaola and his orchestra recorded it in New York. This publisher, Herb Bernstein, who was my first publisher, heard that song and another song that I had written, just music instrumentals, and they recorded both of them with this guy, Al Kaola, who, who at the time was a, a very well-known session guitarist in, in New York and had, had records out on United Artists Records at the time. I think he even had a hit with, I think it was Never on Sunday, or, you know, from the movies. So that was a that was a thrilling moment. The first vocal song I ever had recorded, I was 17, and Melissa Manchester did it. We were both being worked with Steve Kagan, who was Melissa's brother-in-law, was working with me, and he heard a song I wrote and recorded it with Melissa, and that was back before anybody knew who Melissa Manchester was. I want you to tell us about the song that you wrote that was recorded by a few people, recorded by the Carpenters, and Murray, I just fall in love again. Yeah, I, t- I tell a funny story when I when I do that song. The first person to record it w- was Karen Carpenter, as as the Carpenters, and it was about oh six months after uh, we wrote it. 
and I was thrilled to death. I mean, you know, the Carpenters were arguably the biggest act on the planet, and just to get to get something recorded by her and, and Richard was fantastic. And Peter Knight did the orchestration, who had done Days of Future Past with Moody Blues. It was one of my favorite albums. It's a 94-piece orchestra, and I was just ecstatic. Uh, so they recorded it, and Richard said, it's not going to be a single, but it's made the album. And I was thrilled. And about a year and a half later, I got a call from Dusty Springfield, who was, I idolized Dusty. I'd gotten to work with her. I'd gotten to produce some things with her later in her career. And she called me and she said, I heard this song you wrote and I want to cut it. I just fall in love again. I said, oh, fantastic. You know, she cut it and she called me after it was done. She said, you know, it's not going to be a single, but it's going to be on the album. It came out great. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, Karen Carpenter, Dusty Springfield, it's getting pretty good. Mm -hmm. I may not ever have a hit single on this song. And, and then other people were recording it. Some other smaller acts started recording. And then I got a call from my good friend Jim Ed Norman in, from Toronto. And he said, Anne heard Dusty's version. Anne loves Dusty. And um, we're going to re record it. It's not going to be a single, but I think it'll, it'll definitely make the album. And about six months after um, they released that album, a radio station in Buffalo, New York, started playing it. It became the next single, yeah, song of the year. So that that's kind of the genesis of that song, and it's been it's been cut probably forty, fifty times. Wow, years by artists all over the world. It has to be extremely thrilling to have a song recorded by that many people. It's thrilling when anybody records anything, even once. Uh, for me, that's the applause that a songwriter gets. When most people don't know who we are. I think the public just that listens to the radio assumes that Kenny Rogers wrote through the years or Billy Joel wrote his hits or Barry Manilow wrote a lot of all of his hits when he didn't. Right. Most people don't know the difference between a songwriter and that business and the artist who records it. Right. For me, it's a great sense of applause when, when, when anybody records one of my songs. It means that they thought enough about it to spend the money and take the time to, to use it. I wanted you to tell all the listeners out there about this movie called Every Which Way But Loose and the song that you have. That was my first big break. I happened to be in the office of the publishing company that I was writing for at the time. Snuff Garrett, who was a well-known record producer and music supervisor, called me into his office and he said, there's a movie, Clint Eastwood, and the song that they were going to use, which was written by a very big act at the time, was being thrown out. And I needed to try to write a song called Every Which Way But Loose. Now, I'm sure right after I left the office, Knowing Snuff as I do, he probably called five or six other people and said, I need, because he needed to look like a hero if he could find the song. Well, I went home thinking it was my gig, and I called Milton Brown, who's a dear friend from Mobile, Alabama, great songwriter. I said, there's this movie, Every Which Way But Loose. Do you know what that means? And he said, sure, I know what it means. It's a southern phrase. And I said, oh, okay, well, here's, here's what I know. It's a story about a guy who drives around in a truck who fights people, and he's got a pet orangutan. And Milton said, okay, let's write it. And I said, okay. And we wrote it over the phone in about 20 minutes that night, and I took it in the next day and played it for Snuff, and he loved it. And he called Eastwood, and we went over to Warner's and played it for Clint, I think, that afternoon at the piano. And he loved it. He said, who can we get to sing it? 
And at the time, Snuff had a lot of good inroads with Electra Asylum, who I guess were going to do the soundtrack. And they had a new an artist named Eddie Rabbit, who was happening at the time, but hadn't had that big, big breakout single. So we got Eddie to do it. It was a big, big old number one record for us. How did you meet Milton Brown? Milton and I met when I was at the University of Georgia. We both were writing for Bill Lowry, Lowry Music in Atlanta. I was cutting classes driving to Atlanta three times a week to do anything I could just to be around that, be around a recording studio, be around other writers and publishers. And the guy who was running the publishing company at the time said, we've got this guy that's writing fantastic lyrics, but just really not so good melodies. And he said, you're writing amazing melodies and your lyrics leave a lot to be desired. Why don't I put you two guys together? And I said, sure, I'd never collaborated before. And Milton sent me five or six lyrics, and I loved them, and I just started writing to them. And that's how uh, Dorf and Brown started writing songs together. And uh, Milton and I have had, oh my, six, seven number ones together, and probably over 50, 50, 60 songs recorded together. And we've been best friends since for 40 years. Well, tell us about the song that Mel Tillis recorded. Coca-Cola Cowboy mm -hmm. in 1979. That was from Every Which Way But Loose. Part of the postscript to the Every Which Way But Loose story is, in my meeting with Clint, after we had done the record with Eddie, he said, look, he said, I had had this movie scored by a guy, who, and I'm not really happy with the score. It doesn't really fit now the song. I love the song. Uh, have you ever scored a movie before? And I just went, uh, uh, well, I think I can. <laughs> and and that was my first foray into writing a score for a movie. In that movie, there were several other songs that I ended up writing. I'll Wake You Up When I Get Home, which was a number one song for Charlie Rich. Coca-Cola Cowboy from Mel Tillis. The way Coca-Cola Cowboy came about, a guy named Sandy Pinkert really had the idea for that song. And Sandy had brought me the chorus because he didn't really have a verse for it. And he said, could you help me write the verse? And I listened to it, and it was kind of a quirky song, and I, I wrote the verse melody. I call collect on the phone, and it had this augmented chord, which I don't think was ever used in country music at the time. It was just so, had such a different spin on the ball. We played, we finished the song, played it for Snuff, who loved it, and he played it for Mel Tillis, who wanted in on the soundtrack, and that's how that happened. Of the writing songs, or doing scores. Could you pick a favorite that you like more than the other? No. No? Really not. I mean, I, I that's a pretty frequently asked question. And I suppose songwriting is what I did first. Although, in retrospect, probably underscoring was really what I did first because I was doing that without knowing what it was as a kid and all my life. So, I think the two go hand in hand. Uh, for me. I love writing songs still, um, getting an idea and trying to compact it into that three and a half minute little movie. But scoring a movie is, is a completely different art form and you exercise much different musical muscles when, when you approach doing television or, or film score as you do when you're writing songs. So for me, it's always been a nice balance of going back and forth. And not many guys do that. Not many guys do both. Not too long ago, we did an interview with Marty Panzer, the great lyricist, and he talked about the song through the years. That song has had just tremendous... A lot of people love that song. Yeah, it just went over 5 million performances. 5 million, million plays. Yeah. 
Wow. It was one of those one of those magic things that just rolled out. I remember vividly writing it. Probably took us all of fifteen minutes to write that song. Marty came to my house for dinner. I don't know if he told you this story. I didn't mention that. This is the true story. All right. He we'll came to my house for the first time. We were my ex wife was cooking dinner. And Marty came in, and as he always did with me, he would pull a lyric out of a manila envelope, and he said, I have a lyric for you. And Marty, in his quirky, crazy way that only is Marty, he would recite, he would hand me the lyric, and he would, no, he wouldn't hand it to me. He wouldn't want me looking at it before he acted it out. And he would read me the lyric in a way that only Marty does, where where there's so much passion and so much meaning to each word. And I listened to it <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's great. Can I look at it? And I, I looked at it and as I was kind of reading down paper, I started to hear what the music was. And so I yelled in to Nancy at the time and I, I said, Nancy, I said, how long till dinner? And she said, oh, about 15 minutes. And Marty and I went in the back room and sat at the piano and we wrote before dinner. And as Marty, Marty never lets you change a comma in his lyrics. He's like, he's tough. What I like to do is, after I write it, I like to massage it a little, and sometimes I'll, I'll question this, I'll play devil's advocate with that. And so we went back after dinner, obviously, and kind of looked at it again, and it was pretty much done. You mentioned his passion. For someone who hasn't met Marty Panzer, what is he like? <laughs> Marty is one of the sweetest, most honest, giving collaborators and, and people that I that I've ever known. He's just he's he's just a wonderful, wonderful person. He is quirky and <laughs> very funny at times, and there's nobody else like him. He's just one of a kind. But obviously, uh, just a fantastic, fantastic songwriter. This is always a question that songwriters. There's not a songwriter, I think that doesn't struggle with this question. Could you pick a favorite song that you wrote? Yeah, that's that's a, it's a tough question, and I'm asked that all the time. Probably two or three of my favorite things that I think are the best work I've ever done in terms of what the art form is, nobody will ever hear. Nobody has heard, and probably because they're not commercial. Mm -hmm. They're not that thing that makes a hit song. I've always said that and this is getting off the point a little, but my feeling of what makes a hit song is, is I start from a very personal place and then somewhere in the process turn it to where the person in Gainesville, Georgia, can look at his wife and say, that's exactly how I feel about you. Mm -hmm. Or the Mary and Al in Des Moines, Iowa can hear that song and go, that's our song. That was the why through the years was such a huge success because everybody could identify it. The universality of it was so complete. Some of my favorite things that I've ever written are just not musically, not relatable to most people or lyrically. And that's probably why they're my favorites, because they're, they're 100% personal. Right. I wanted you to tell us about the song that you wrote that was done by Glenn Campbell, Any Which Way You Can. Mm -hmm. What was it like well, having him record Oh, I love Glenn. Obviously, that was the, the sequel to Every Which Way But Loose, which came about, I think, two two or three years after the first movie. And, of course, we were, Milton and I were asked to, to write another Every Which Way But Loose. It's always hard to write sequel 
songs, just like it's hard to make sequel movies. I mean, other than The Godfather, I can't think of a sequel to a movie that was better than the first one. And we certainly didn't want to have that problem with the song. After we wrote, had a couple of tries, we decided to just kind of depart from it and write something that could stand on its own and, and be a hit. We got Glenn to do it. There are parts of that song that I actually like musically better than Every Which Way But Loose, but it wasn't the hit that Every Which Way But Loose was, because it wasn't the first one. You mentioned that there were a few of your songs that they weren't as commercial, but they're very special to you. Mm-hmm. This time, I'd like you to see, just based on the fact of who recorded it, has there been anyone that's recorded one of your songs? Well, obviously many. Who has recorded a song that you wrote that you were just, I can't believe this is happening? Celine Dion Miracle. Yeah? Yeah. Great song. Thank you. The question we that we get asked a lot, or that I get asked a lot, is did the finished product, did the, did the record when it came out, was, did it reach your greatest expectation? Most of the time, the answer is no. Most of the time, there's something in the performance or in the record that's changed. They'll change a chord, they'll change a bit of the melody, sometimes they'll even change a word, which kind of bothers me. When I first heard Celine's version of Miracle, it was like perfect. It exceeded any expectation I had. The track was magnificent, the orchestration was magnificent, the vocal was stellar. It doesn't happen very often. Another one that comes to mind is Christopher Cross doing Swept Away. Yeah. That was a fantastic record that Chris made. And Streisand's Higher Ground was also one of those that I'm still extremely proud of. And and whenever I I listen to it, I go, wow, (laughs) she is just, there's nobody like her. And so I think certain artists bring a rare form of artistry that just can't be duplicated. In Higher Ground, she made that the title cut, correct? Yeah. It was yeah. the title song of her inspirational album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful song. Thank you. I wanted to also talk about the movie Pure Country. Mm-hmm. You wrote three songs for that soundtrack. The songs were done by George Strait. You worked with John Bettis, the lyricist on that. Heartland. Two of them. John and I wrote Heartland. Eric Kaz and I wrote I Cross My Heart. What was the third one? I think the third one was the the last track, Heartland. Oh yeah, we did Heartland with the little with with George's son. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, it was the Heartland reprise, which actually opens the movie. Yeah, that was that was one of those amazing projects that comes along hopefully more than one time in a career. But I just I was very fortunate to get asked to to do that movie. I started, I was hired to score the movie by Chris Kane, the director. Once we got into the into the pre-production of the film, Chris said, we're going to be filming George on several concert sequences, and I need certain songs to be written before we start physical production on the film, because I've got to shoot George singing. I read through the script. There were two spots that I wanted to do. The opening, which is Heartland, and the love song at the end. There were, as you can imagine, thousands of songs submitted for that film, as are for all films. I Cross My Heart had been originally recorded by Bette Midler. That was a song, an existing song. And Chris Kane, the director, came to me and said, I just, I'm not hearing anything that, you know, you got, you got to write something for this love scene. I said, I said, I have a song that I don't think I could write a better one for this spot. And he said, really? He said, what is it? I said, it's a song that, that's been kind of laying around for six or seven years. He said, play it for me. And I played for him. It was like, cross my heart. And he loved it. He said, that's perfect. And we went to George and we, we played the song for George. He didn't really like it. He didn't think it was him. 
Mm. Fortunately, at some point after he heard himself doing it a few times around the piano, he kind of owned it, and all of a sudden everybody knew that this is fantastic marriage between an artist and and a piece of material. Heartland was originally called Pure Country. John and I had written a song called Pure Country with pretty much the same melody, but a totally different lyric. And George hated it. He said, there's, he says, I, I wish they changed the name of the movie, but as long as the movie has to be called Pure Country, I don't want to do a song called Pure Country. That's just cheesy. And I can't say that I, I disagree with him now, looking back. So John and I, over the phone, rewrote that song. I was in Nashville with the band sitting in the studio, and John was in Los Angeles, and we spent about 45 minutes revising it. He came up with this whole new lyric idea, Heartland, and I had to massage the music to make it fit, and we went in and recorded it. Came a nice, nice hit for us. Those songs that you wrote with John Bettis, there's so many of them. What is your impression of John Bettis, the lyricist? John is beyond compare. John is a throwback for me, John is a throwback to Oscar Hammerstein or uh, Lorenz Hart. He's a true, true wordsmith. He has a theatricality to his lyrics that not many lyricists have. He's able to write about any subject in his own tone of voice, and you know it's Bettis lyric. He just has a tone of voice in his writing that's unique to him. What I love about John as a writer is that it's always got a little different spin on the ball. Things he says are so easy to understand, but there's always a way he says it that that makes you go, wow, that's that's kind of cool. In your opinion, what makes a good song a good song? A lot of things. We're not talking about the record now. We're talking about a song because great records can be made of bad songs. And bad records can be made of great songs. And I believe if it's a great song, it'll find its way. I think the marriage between the melody and the lyric, it has to be kind of this seamless, this thing that makes you think, God, those words just float on that melody so perfectly, like they were just married. T for two. T for two. T. Two for T. The great songs, the timeless songs, have that marriage of lyric and melody that It just feels like they were born together. A lot of songs feel forced, especially, I I think, a lot of songs that are on the radio today, that songs are being written like in factories, like much of what happens for all products. It's being mass-produced. There's a lot of stuff out there, and then there are very few really true, amazing songs that that have a life. And and I think what, what ultimately makes a great song is is the span of how long you hear it. You know, if over, uh, you know, any song can, can lock up and be a hit and go up and down the charts in 20 weeks or whatever, and then there's songs that last for 75, hundreds of years. There are some songs that you don't hear them on the radio exactly, but they have a tremendous life. There's a guy who lives around here, he's a writer. He's told me a few times that one of his favorite songs, a lot of people... You wouldn't really think of it. You wouldn't think of it, but it doesn't mean it's not a great song. And it's as long as we've got each other. He thinks that, like one day, he, he, he took me aside and he said, just look at this song. It's a theme song for a, a TV show, but it's great. <laughs> That's funny. That was one of those that there's a great story behind that song. I, I was in England doing a movie and I got a call from my agent. When are you coming back? Because they want you to write a theme for a television show. And I said, oh, okay, 
whenever that was. I think I was due back in like three or four days. So I came, so he set the meeting and I came in and I went to watch this pilot on a new television show, Warner's Pilots, the first episode, 22 minutes. I'm watching this thing. I'm thinking this is the worst half hour of television I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I meet with the three producers after I saw it. And they said, how'd you like it? I said, hey, it was, it was on the screen. You know, it was good. You know, I, um, what, what, so what, what can I do? He said, well, we want, you know, we want kind of a, a song, kind of like the old days. Just don't want 15 seconds. We want like a song that talks about what's going on with this family. And I said, okay. And they told me kind of what they wanted. They all wanted something different musically. One guy wanted John Sebastian. One guy wanted Pat Metheny. One guy wanted Latin percussion, which everything had nothing to do with nothing. So I went home thinking, well, this show's not going to ever get on television anyway. So it doesn't really matter what I write. I happened to have a writing date with John Bettis that day. He was at the house. I apologized for being late. I said, look, I just came from Warner's. I've got to write this 30-second thing or 60 second thing. You want to do it with me? He said, sure. I tell him about what I had just seen about this family. And, and I said, but they want the, they want the title of the song to be growing pains, you know, which is kind of an ugly title. Yeah. Growing only rhymes with rowing or towing. I mean, what? So I told him about it and John takes out his yellow pad and he just starts scribbling out. Let's do as long as we got each other. We can, as long as we have each other, we can, we can get through anything. Let's just make it very simple, very basic, very universal. I said, sounds good to me, as long as we can write it quick and go to lunch. We wrote that in about, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour. I called the producers after lunch. I said, yeah, I, I, I toiled with this. I took all your notes. We wrote, we spent a whole day writing this thing. You want to come over and hear it? And they came over and I sat down and played it the next day for them and thinking this is going to be ugly and played it for them. They all looked at me and they were all smiling. I said, that's exactly what we wanted. Had nothing whatsoever to do with anything that we had talked about them wanting musically. It was just instinctively what John and I thought was the right thing for the show. Very up, very bouncy, very positive. It became, the show ran for eight years, which shows how much I know about network television. And the record, we did the duet with Dusty Springfield and B.J. Thomas, and it was a top, I think a top ten, top ten record. And uh, yes, it's funny, when I play that song, I can play stuff that I really think is deep musically. Right. And then when I play Growing Pains, and B.J. tells me this too, he'll go out on in concert and do raindrops. And yeah. I just can't help believing in Suspicious Minds and Eyes of a New York Woman. And everybody's polite. And when he does Growing Pains, they go bananas. <laughs> so, what shows the power of television? Yeah, that's a really good story. If you could put it into words, what is it you like about songwriting? Mm, that's a good question. It's like putting a, some people love doing a word puzzle in the, in the New York Times. Some people love doing playing. It's kind of a game. Writing a great song is, is putting this kind of, you're taking two blank pages. One's music, one's words, and you're just dreaming up an idea and then putting it to music or sometimes dreaming up a piece of music and putting a lyric to the music. It happens both ways. For me, it happens both ways. And it's just kind of, it's fun and challenging to put that puzzle together. How do you feel about the future of songwriting? It's hard to say. 
I think there's great songs being written. You know, it kind of begs the question, what's the future of, of music and recorded music? Because it's, we're definitely trending down. You know, it's not a great time economically for the music business. And I think it does have its impact on the way songs are being written. I think the, I think the great writers will always do it their way and, and write great songs. The question is whether they'll be heard and how they'll be heard. What's on the horizons with you? What are you working on now? Well, I'm doing a musical that John Bettis and I have been writing for the past seven and a half years called Josephine. It's the Josephine Baker story. It's going to Broadway sometime next year, 2012. Wow. And that's been a such an incredibly huge amount of work, which hopefully will pay some big de- dividends emotionally as well as financially. We're, we're excited about that. We have Deborah Cox starring as Josephine Baker. We're very excited about that. John and I are also musicalizing Pure Country, doing a stage version of that. I'm doing uh, I'm musical directing a show called The Singing Bee on CMT, which has become quite a, a big hit, and I wrote the theme to that. That's been a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll be doing more episodes of that early next year. I'm producing a band from London, writing and producing three brothers called Next of Kin that I think are these guys are the next coming of the Bee Gees. Exciting band. They play great. They sing great. Good good songs being written. And just writing, trying to write good songs when the idea when the ideas hit me. What is the best thing about being Steve Dorff? Oh boy. I think different people would give you different answers on that one. For me, Probably my children is the best thing about being Steve Dorff. I have four amazing kids, and that's kind of, they're kind of the center of my universe. My last question for anyone who's listening to this broadcast, whenever, wherever, what would you like to say to all the people? Thanks for liking my work. I appreciate that. I appreciate when anybody plays one of my songs, when I hear, hear it on an elevator or hear it in a bar, piano player playing cocktail music all of a sudden breaks out into one of my songs. That, to me, is just the most fantastic, fantastic moment for me. Because having not been an artist myself, per se, never, you know, I've, I've done a couple of CDs of, of my songs, doing versions of, of my songs, but never with the idea of ever wanting to go out there and tour and, and really be James Taylor or Michael Buble. I'm a songwriter. I'm not a performer. So hearing... Other performers do my work is, I can't tell you how satisfying that is. There's actually one more question I was going to ask you. I forgot. I was flipping through the channels on the television set. This was a couple weeks ago, and there was a song that you wrote that came on, and I paused for a second just because I recognized it. There are some of your songs you must have heard. You must have heard it a hundred times. When you hear a song that you wrote, do you pause for a second? Does it make your ears perk up? Or have you just gotten used to that? Is it any different than another song? That's what I'm saying. When I'm listening to the radio and yeah, like my mind comes on? Right, you walk into... Uh, yeah, and some, sometimes I'll go... You know, it's funny because sometimes I'll go, I know that, what is that? And you know, it's true. I'll, yeah. I'll go, what the hell is that? And, and, then, and then I'll realize, well, shit, I wrote it. Um, it. It's funny. When that happens, it's usually one of my more obscure things. Like, uh, there's this place in Nashville that... There's this guy, Bill, that plays at the at the Lowe's Vanderbilt Plaza Hotel in Nashville, where I stay a lot. And I'll go down and have a drink in the bar. And all of a sudden, I'll be hearing the theme from Spencer for Hire. And I'll go, 
what the hell is that? And then I'll go, oh, wait a minute, I wrote that. And, then, <laughs> and uh, I'll look around and Bill will be smiling at me. And But again, he took the time to learn something that most people can't even remember that that show was on the air or, or higher ground, which you don't hear that much on the radio because it's Streisand. And sometimes I'll hear that and I'll go, shit, how'd that get on the air? <laughs> Obviously, went through the years, you know, I'll hear that, or I just fall in love again, or I cross my heart, or heartland, and it's always nice to hear them. But yeah, I, I would say the ear perks up a little when it's something you created. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. It's been a great fun. pleasure. Okay. Thanks.